Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Let me uh, read. There's going to be a lot of scripture this morning, but let me start with uh, the last two verses of the Old Testament. So you have the Bible broken up into two parts. You have the Old Testament you have the New Testament. These are the final verses of the Old Testament. Looking forward to Jesus, the prophet Malachi says this, speaking in God's behalf, he says, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. And so this is the prophecy that points forward to the entire New Testament, that God's going to send the prophet Elijah, and that he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. A very, very dear text to me, And it ought to be to all of us because if we were to say what it is that makes this church different from all the other churches in this community, I would say that it is the place of fathers and mothers and children. Thinking about how to talk to the little ones up front here this morning, I was thinking, could you explain to them how many churches in this community have made a decision to have SUVs and boats and summer homes? instead of children. I mean, really, think about it. I often tell people that what makes us stand out is that the elders of our church are fathers to the congregation. You think about how many churches the elders are, spend their time looking at the, at the schedule, uh, at the money, at things like that. But that's not what we spend our time doing in elders' meetings. We spend our time as fathers of the church caring for the household. And so this church, and, it's, and, and you can see it just by how many kids there are up here this morning, this church has a fundamental commitment to restoring the hearts of their fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Oftentimes we have to crack the heads of the fathers in order to do this. That's what Wayne was referring to this morning. Even when we don't want to meet with them, they will meet with us about our pastors, but actually our elders do it even more. In other words, it's very, very hard work restoring the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. If you've grown up without a father who gave his heart to you, you know that you will die mourning the absence of your father's heart for you. God will comfort you in that. God will be your father, but you will never get over not having your father's heart as you grew up. And you know that if your father didn't give you his heart, that your heart doesn't belong to him. And so your, your father's heart, he didn't give it to you, and so you will not give your heart to your father. 
right? A lot of people have their lives defined by that. Who's he? Well, he's a man that won't give his heart to his father. His father's been dead 30 years. He's about to die. He's the man that won't give his heart to his father. As a matter of fact, if you look at the relationship of uh, everyone in the United States of America today to every authority, from police officers to judges to doctors to pastors to elders to teachers, it's defined by a nation of people who refuse to give their hearts to their fathers. So every authority is an enemy. (laughs) And I look at that having loved my father and I just think, what? I think, how sad, right? How terribly, not utterably sad. And then I think, how foolish. And then I think, how stupid. And then I think, how unutterably weak. It is not the weak man who gives his heart to his children. It's weakness that keeps us from giving our hearts to our children. And it's not strength that keeps children from giving their hearts to their dads. It's not strength that causes us to hate authority. It's weakness. And so this is how the Old Testament ends. God says, through his servant the prophet, that he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Now how are you going to do that? You're going to do it by fiat from, say, Caesar Augustus? All right, now it's time for everyone to give their hearts to their fathers. And all you fathers, it's time to give your hearts to your children. In the days of Caesar Augustus, there went out a decree that all the fathers would give their hearts to the children. All the children would give their hearts to their fathers. All right, now one, two, Now, Caesar Augustus says so. A mother can wheedle and cajole her husband all she wants for as long as she wants, and she can't. Not even his beloved wife can restore the hearts of the children to their dad and the dad to the children. How is it that we do restore the hearts of fathers to their children and children to their fathers? There's only one way to do it, and that is through the blood of Jesus Christ, cleansing us from our sin and making us, changing us from men to lovers. To lovers. You don't find any curriculum at Indiana University teaching fathers to love their children. The very concept is ludicrous. How would Indiana University go about doing that? You know, which department would it be in? Mathematics? (laughs) Well, all right, you've learned to multiply, it's time to learn to love. Economics, you know, the, the order of a household. Would it be sociology? All my social press professors always spoke as they lectured. You know, at least 
a sociology professor is crusty enough that they might take sin seriously. Certainly not astronomy. I don't think physics. What department is it in the university that would teach fathers to love their children and children to love their fathers? Would it be the religious studies department? That's the last place you'd ever expect it to happen, right? And so this is how the Old Testament ends. And then we have four accounts of the coming of Jesus. Who, and only one of those accounts is written by a physician, a doctor. And only the doctor tells us the beginning of the fulfillment of this prophecy by starting it in a, in a, in a womb of a woman. And that's, that's Luke. All the other Gospels just tell you what John did. They tell you about his preaching. They tell you about him preparing the way of the Lord with his mouth. But only Luke starts the story at the very beginning, which is with the conception in the womb of a woman of this one that God foretold. Listen to this story. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. Zechariah was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your petition has been heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord." Zacharias said to the angel, how will I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. The angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their proper time. 
The people were waiting for Zacharias and were wondering at his delay in the temple, but when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. When the days of his priestly service were ended, he went back home. After these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant, and she kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me, to take away my disgrace among men. This is the word of the Lord. So as I said, of the different accounts of the life of Jesus and therefore of the life of the prophet sent before him, which was John the Baptist, this is the only one that starts the story with the conception of a child in the womb of the child's mother. It's the physician. It's, it's Luke. He's the one who doesn't forget about the women. And so we start the story, and it seems like a strange beginning for the good news about Jesus Christ, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, whose kingdom shall have no end. Because if you're a mover and a shaker, you don't start a story with the conception of a child in the womb of a woman. As a matter of fact, if you're a mover and shaker, you're going to delete that part of the story because it's, it's beneath our notice. It's, it's something you act like you don't see. You don't see pregnant women. You don't see pregnancy. You don't see birth. You really don't see babies in diapers. You really don't start to see anybody until they have at least a college degree. And then with a college degree, you begin to note them and see how they make out. Then maybe if they get a master's depending on the department, you know. And then if they get a doctorate, as long as it's not from the School of Education, they actually have some gravity, you know. Or a demon, that's, well, all right. There are a few degrees that maybe are not quite up to snuff, but movers and shakers begin to notice when, what, you have a doctorate or when you don't have a doctorate, but Microsoft is your company, or Facebook. In other words, it's not until you have made something of yourself that you are worth having your history written and people taking notice of you. And so many of you sitting here today are beneath the notice of anybody of importance. You don't matter, and you know it. You don't have any illusions about your life. You look at your life and you think, well, I taught some kids, changed some diapers, was married to an idiot, and died. But you, some of you haven't died yet. Come on, think about it. <laughs> Thank you, Jody and Don. And so, in Luke, we have this account. And the account is of God fulfilling the prophecy by putting a tiny, tiny, tiny little baby in the womb of his mother. And I'm not talking about Jesus. I'm talking about John the Baptist. 
And listen, if there ever was a man on the face of the earth other than Jesus, it was John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a man. Remember how he died? That's how you know he's a man. He died because he rebuked the president. And the president's wife was livid. And she sent out her daughter to dance for her husband so well that her husband said, what would you like? And the daughter came back to the mother and said, I want the head of John the Baptist. Listen, when you have a woman who's married to the president demanding your, your head because you rebuked her husband, he was a man. And that man started life in the womb of a woman. And he didn't start life in the womb of a woman at, say, for instance, you know, like, say, I mean, when would it be okay? Three months? Are you willing to say that maybe three months it's a human life in the womb? Would you, is that okay? Three months. You know, out of nine months, one-third, then we'll give him the status of a human being, right? Not three months, what? You want six? You want to go down. Okay, how far down you want to go? When it's that big, the little baby. You, this big? You know, you're not married yet, so this is kind of hypothetical construct for you. Let's have a married man. How, how old do you want a child to be before you recognize it's John the Baptist? Huh? How old? I mean, let's have it be not until it's past plan B. We don't want to have to worry about killing unborn children in the first few days, right? I mean, that's just, come on. I mean, if people don't want a baby, they should be able to kill it in the first few days, right? Right? I mean, who's going to attribute personhood to a three-day-old conceptus? You know? And now, right about now, all of you are thinking, well, why, why does Tim have to do that at Christmas? And here's the reason I have to do it, because I don't want any more of you using plan B. Did you hear my words? I don't want any more of you doing it. John the Baptist was a human being. He was John the Baptist from the moment of conception because he was conceived by the power of God. God doesn't conceive an animal and three days later or six days later, it turns into a human being. It would have been murder for them to use plan B to get rid of John the Baptist. Do you understand me? We can't be all gushy about motherhood and pregnancy and Christmas and, and all this other stuff and just somehow avoid saying no to plan B. Do you understand Christianity is always saying no because of the yes. And so we say no to killing unborn children because can you count up all the unborn children who are in their mother's wombs by miracles of God that God built his kingdom on? Have you ever thought about that? Start with what? 
our father in the faith, Abraham. How many years did Abraham and Sarah have to wait for the fulfillment of God's promise? Until that woman was, quote, what? As good as dead. <laughs> Our scripture is just so, uh, what? So East Coast-ish. You know, it's not like the Midwest at all. Can you imagine anybody in the Midwest saying about themselves or anybody else, she was as good as dead. But boy, Philadelphia, we got it covered, you know. She was as good as dead. And when the angel said she was going to be pregnant by that time next year, she was going to give birth. Do you remember how she responded? She was from Pittsburgh. And she laughed. And being from Pittsburgh, when they said, why did she laugh? She said, I didn't laugh. She lied about it. It was impossible that Sarah could become pregnant. She was as good as dead. It was such an impossibility that she laughed. And in her was Isaac. The child of the covenant. And every single Christian here today is a descendant of Isaac and of Sarah and of Abraham. If we're born of the covenant. And you go through the patriarchs and you see this happen again. You see Rachel, then you go on and what do you see? You see what? It's not quite the same with Moses, is it? It's not quite the same. Moses' parents conceived him in the normal way. And it wasn't extraordinary, their conception, but what was extraordinary about Moses? What was extraordinary was that Pharaoh, being a typical rich man, thought there were just too many poor people in his kingdom. And so he put out a decree that all the Hebrew children should be killed. Do you remember this? And so the midwives schemed and lied and protected the children, but they still were subject to the death decree of the king. You know, the king had all his Planned Parenthood satellites all over the country, and the king was determined that Planned Parenthood would have the funding of the nation. And so Moses was born under a death sentence. It wasn't that his mother couldn't become pregnant naturally. It was that Moses was born under a death sentence. And God decreed that in a miraculous way, this little child who was a threat to the Pharaoh, the king, would be chosen by the Pharaoh's daughter to be raised in Pharaoh's house. And then one day, this child was the child that God selected to come back and set his people free. God never abhors the womb of a woman. He does not abhor babies. He does not abhor pregnancy. God loves motherhood. And God does not neglect and he doesn't, he doesn't, he's not incapable of seeing little ones in their mother's wombs. 
And so again and again in scripture, we see the stories come of how God raises up a child. And you know, if you were to ask Donald Trump whether or not, I think probably the best one is John the Baptist. Whether John the Baptist was going to be uh, somebody auspicious, somebody worthy of having his name on a hotel. The only thing that would cause Donald Trump to take notice of John the Baptist when his mother became pregnant, when she gave birth to him, is the fact that John the Baptist, like Donald Trump, never touched any alcoholic drink. You didn't know that about Donald Trump, did you? And so John the Baptist was to be a Nazarite. He was not to ever have any alcohol. But other than that, Donald Trump isn't going to take notice of John the Baptist. Right? Rich men don't take notice of prophets. Until the prophet rebukes them and then they notice them. And so what we see is that in God's dealing with man, he raises up little babies to be in their mother's wombs. He protects newborns that are subject to death. He prophesies about the coming of a child to uh, an old, old priest and his wife who are far beyond the ability of having children. And then he comes to a virgin. And every single Christian Christmas, we must recognize the fact that it makes absolutely no sense for God to send Jesus into the womb of a virgin. There was absolutely no reason for Jesus to live prior to his 30th year, when his real ministry started, right? Three short years. We could have skipped all the preliminaries and gotten to the point. But that's not how God did it. God caused a virgin to conceive. And it was a gnarly business because it was an embarrassment to her. It made her look like she was immoral. It was an embarrassment to her husband, her fiance, because it made him look like he was yoked to an immoral woman. And he loved her. And this is how God chose to do it. Every single thing about these examples that I've given you is intended to perfectly remove any chance of pride and self-determination from the salvation that God brings to us. Nobody can say anything about any of these examples other than that God is pleased to make little of us and much of himself. In other words, God is not impressed by being an American, by having a degree, by being a man, by being married, money. God isn't impressed by us. God is impressed by those who fear him and obey his commandments. Because that's an indication that they love him. And so we have 
Elizabeth and Zechariah, who both love God. And we know they love him because it says that they obeyed his commandments. And so what did God do? God, and, and, and again, you have to hear the words of Scripture. What does it say God did to Elizabeth? What it says is he took away her shame. <laughs> oh, man, that's just so upsetting. Because we all know how it happens. And if you don't get pregnant, there's nothing to be ashamed of. Right? Because pregnancy is a choice. It's a lifestyle option. You know, with plan B and all the other stuff that comes before it, and then, you know, you can use drugs later, and then you can have surgical, and you can even give it up for adoption. You know, all these things. We are masters of our destiny. We make choices to have babies. And so babies are the result of our will. They're the result of our choice, of our um, leadership, you know, of our... And this woman, Elizabeth, who was really royalty when it came to the religious leaders of Israel, this woman, Elizabeth, lived in her shame of not having a child, and she obeyed God, and they prayed. And then God gave them John the Baptist. And that's, that's the only reason we know about Elizabeth. We don't know whether Elizabeth had been able before she married Zechariah to have uh, an established legal practice to serve as an intern with one of the Christian senators in Washington, D.C., Come on, you guys. All we know about Elizabeth is that she obeyed God, and God gave her a baby in her womb that removed her shame. And when we begin to think those ways about motherhood, pregnancy, marriage, and babies, we begin to be, once again, biblical. In Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways. And can you feel the tension there? You know, God's saying no to us. God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways. My, way, my thoughts aren't your thoughts, and your ways are not my ways. All right? For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And so we look across history and we see the birth of Isaac. We see the birth of Samson. 
we see the birth of Samuel. We see scripture refer to the prophets. And what does it say about the prophets? It says that the prophets were set apart while they were yet in the womb. That God filled them with the spirit. And he says the same thing about Zechariah. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And then in Luke, we read verse 41, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby, this would be John the Baptist, leaped in her womb. And then in verse 42, she cried out with a loud voice and said, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit, what? Of your womb. And then in verse 44, two verses later, for behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. And then in Luke 2.21, when eight days had passed, before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And then in Luke 11.27, when Jesus was speaking publicly, when he was saying these things, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. Isaiah chapter 49 verse 1 says, The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother he named me. I, Jeremiah, God speaks to Jeremiah the prophet at the beginning in verse 5, and he says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. And then Paul in Galatians chapter 1.15 says, But when God, who had set me apart, even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace. Listen, there is no way to be a Christian without honoring motherhood. We don't refer to our women as the little lady. She was the mother of God. And her womb nurtured. And that's why the hymn says, he abhorred not the virgin's womb. He didn't look down on it. He didn't despise it. He didn't treat it with disrespect, but he respected the virgin's womb. And I thought to myself, why, why do Brian and Nicole, and why do Adam and Don, they take this little box, and when one of their babies dies, they take the little, 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 little tiny baby, and they put it in the box, and then they invite all their friends over to their house and you get out of your cars and you traipse across this field and the father carries this tiny little box and all the bedraggled people of God gather around this little hole <laughs> it's so stupid 
you think about it. I mean, honestly, the law doesn't even require us to do anything with that. You know, they wouldn't even have to have a funeral. Why are they doing that? And you know what the answer is. The answer is because being the people of God, we confess that at every stage of life, this is a man bearing the image of God that we love. That's it. And how do they confess this when they have had a late-term miscarriage? The way they confess this is by taking this human being bearing the image of God, and they put it in a box, and they say, we are going to pray and sing and hug and cry and bury it. Right? And so all, many of you have been there with me. You know, and I feel awkward, you know? I mean, honestly, why bother mourning and grieving over a little box? Listen, people. If Christmas means anything to you, what it ought to mean is that if God abhorred not the virgin's womb, we will not abhor womanhood. We will not abhor wombs. We will not abhor nursing. We won't abhor little babies that cry and need their diapers changed. And when we die, we will not abhor corpses. We will love them because it is a confession of the Christian that every human being from the moment of conception to the moment of death bears the image of God and is to be loved. And the ministry of anointing, the ministry of cleaning, I remember going over to one of the homes here when the father had died and the son with great love described to me how he prepared his father's body for burial. And this is what we do. And if we recognize that the unborn child in the womb of, of Elizabeth and of Mary and of... You go through all salvation history prior to them being able to talk or think or get a PhD. These are men and women bearing the image of God. And when they die... One day soon, Christ will come and raise them from glory. There will be how many children? In your yard. Two in the yard. Three. And I just love that. I just love it. That we bury our little ones. And we cry over them. We don't act like Ah, oh, mother, would you get over it? It was just a miscarriage. But we remember that he abhorred not the virgin's womb. And so we say no to things, and we say yes to things. And that's Christian faith. That's Christian faith. You know? And everybody else might be angry that we would be so judgmental. We say we're not judgmental. We just won't give up burying our miscarriages. Stop oppressing us. <laughs> now, that's a bit of a joke, but, but you get my point. You know, it's hard for Adam and Brian to do this. But I'm so proud of the people in my churches who have required things of me that have caused me to understand God 
and Scripture better. Do you know? Wasn't my idea for them to bury their little ones. But I'm so glad that we do.